0: Hello and welcome to the Professional Empathy Podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Bottleworth, Empathy Speaker and Educator, Social Enterprise University Lecturer and all-round empathy enthusiast. Join me as I explore what empathy is, why it matters, and how to live our lives with greater empathy. So I do this by interviewing people from all sorts of professions and experiences. And today, I'm going to discuss empathy and aged care with Sharon Blackburn, CBE of Ballycara here in Brisbane. You may have heard a lot in the news recently about aged care, especially with the recent Royal Commission, and you'd be forgiven for thinking that empathy and aged care are mutually exclusive. However, today, Sharon and I are going to explore how healthy empathy and relationships put the care back in aged care, and why it is essential for our loved ones, our families, aged care staff, and our communities. Sharon has a breadth and depth of experience spanning 40 years in the health and social care, much of which has been spent in the independent aged care sector. Sharon joined Ballycara's executive team in March 2019, and she's held several executive leadership roles within the for-profit, charity, housing, and not-for-profit organizations. Sharon's committed to helping people and organizations to be the change that they want to see in the world. In 2016, Sharon was awarded a CBE in the Queen's New Year's Honours for services to nursing and the not-for-profit care sector. Thank you for joining me and welcome, Sharon. Sharon, could you please give me a little bit of an introduction about who you are, what you do, and why we're having this conversation today about empathy in relationships and aged care? Leanne, it's lovely
1: to join you. A little bit about me. My professional background is nursing, so general and mental health, but I've been involved in aged care for 30 plus years, and I've been in this sector, health and care, for over 40 years. So lots I've seen lots of change and lots of good advancements in care, but also some things that we don't seem to learn from the past. And so from my perspective, any sort of care, health or aged care, has to be always looked at from the perspective of the person using the service. Relationship-centred care is really important in the context of, I believe, any health or aged care service. So anywhere where people are engaging with professionals or carers or allied health professionals, it always should start with the person using the service. And let's get real about this. That's you and I. We sort of put people over into boxes and compartmentalize people. But from the day we're born to the day we die, we will all use services to a lesser or greater degree. And as we grow up, and mature, hopefully we will become more engaged in those services, depending on what it is, and be able to speak for ourselves. And I really passionately believe that people providing services, unless it's a life-threatening situation where they have to act because it's life or death, that People should be asked what their thoughts are, what their opinions are. And in years gone by, and certainly even when I did my training all those years ago, it was always the medics, the nurses, the doctors know best. But actually, travel forward all the years that we've traveled and with the advance of uh, technology, people now can access information at a, a click of a button. And more people are inquisitive and knowledgeable about what's happening to them and their rights, their human rights, but also their rights to ask questions and to be informed about what is happening to them and to be engaged in that process. And so relationship-centered care for me is paramount about knowing who the person is, seeing the person, not the condition. And then if we get that component right and really listen and walk with people and hear what it feels like from their perspective what's going on in their world how are they experiencing maybe symptoms life stuff that's happening around them that all impacts upon their well-being and their health and the outcomes that they want to achieve then i think that will lead to really good person-centered outcomes for them and we use the word person-centered and it's become really jargonistic And I think we've diminished what its true meaning is about. I don't think professionals get up with the intent to do unto people. I think they really come from a a starting point of wanting to help people. But without understanding who the person is, the context in where they live, and how they want to live their lives, it's very difficult then to actually engage and provide meaningful outcomes that will really help them on their journey and the decisions that they've got to make. So that's some context, I suppose, for the question about why is relationship centered care so important and why I'm so passionate about it.
0: Yeah. And by the sound of it, it's that dignity, that listening, that seeing the person as an individual and not as a condition or a case or a somebody that you deal with. And that's a lot of the language that we use in Empathy training and empathetic leadership is looking at individuals with that humanity, so understanding what they're thinking and what they're feeling and how to respond appropriately to somebody in an individual way. So then what's the difference between this relationship-centred care and you mentioned person-centred care? Are they the same or are they different? I think they're slightly different because I think you can have – And I may be splitting
1: hairs and playing semantics, but I think they are quite distinct in that relationship-centered care care really does do what it says on the tin. It's about you're in relationship with somebody, that active listening, that participation. You could bring in words like co-production, collaboration, co-design. And it isn't saying that a person-centered approach doesn't achieve those things, but Person-centered sometimes can be reduced to, I wouldn't say task-oriented because it isn't. It is supposed to be on the person's terms. But I think it's that added dimension of knowing the person, actively listening to the person. So it isn't just a plan that's personalized to you and how it's going to be executed with you or what you're going to do in it or on your behalf. I think it adds another layer of depth and breadth to the fact that you've really engaged the person to see what is meaningful to them and what outcomes they want to achieve so that you're not just following a condition or a a care pathway, all of which are important and good, or a, a, you know, a, a nursing pathway or a medical pathway. But it is saying, okay, but what does this mean to you? And what am I hearing you say? Because what matters to you matters to us. And we can often say to people, what's the matter? And it elicits a very short response, nothing. I'm okay, I'm fine. Whereas if um, we actually ask the question, what matters to you, it elicits a whole different response. And I suppose an example in my current setting, so where I'm executive director of Balikara and we have a whole range of services and one of the services we offer is wellness. And I know that we've got exercise physiologists to very much work with an older person on their terms and work in a very coaching style to achieve their outcomes. Now, you asking people what they want to achieve, we know that it will involve some physical exercise. But if you mention that to people, it may turn people off. But if you say to people, what is it that you're trying to achieve? What matters to you? And it may be, I really want to be able to make my tea for myself. I want to be able to prepare a meal. I don't want to rely on other people. Okay. Well, that's great because actually we can work with you to strengthen you so that you'll be able to stand long enough or um, have enough strength to lift the kettle when it's got water in and we can do those things. And it shifts the mindset and you're seeing things through the person's lens, not just through your professional lens. And you'll bring your professional expertise to the table and to benefit that individual, but it it shifted the balance of power because the motivation and why somebody is doing it, you're seeing it from their perspective, and you're not seeing the condition that may be inhibiting them doing things. But you're seeing what they want to achieve, and you're listening and working with that from a strength base, not from a deficit base. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it makes perfect sense because then you're looking for opportunities. And it's not a box ticking exercise of, well, Beryl today has to do her exercises and she has to do this and she has to do that. It's, well, hang on, what is it that matters to Beryl and how do we achieve that with her? And how do we, what are the steps that we have to take so that it's meaningful to her? And then she's more likely to participate as well if she sees the meaning and the value. So, what are the benefits then to? your residents of this style of care? I think the benefits are
1: that they are seen as a person first and foremost and that they feel valued. And the fact that you're seeing them and not the range of conditions that they may present with and dependent on where, which service of ours they're using. So we have residential aged care, so where nursing and care are provided and people live you know, 24-7. We have care delivered in people's own homes in the community. And we also have a a wellness approach and use short-term restorative care and where people will do a specified program for a period of time. I think just seeing the person building a relationship, you're not seeing them as somebody less than, you're seeing them as an equal. And There's something I often do if I speak at a conference. I may say to people, you know, can you raise your hand, please? Tell me how many of you took medication this morning. And you'll see loads of hands go up, my own included. And you might then say to somebody, you know, to that group, that audience, well, how many people are carers in this room? Whether it's for a young child through to later life. And again, a lot of people say that they have some care responsibilities. And then the third question I often ask is around, I wonder how many people have a long-term condition, be seen or unseen? And a lot of people's hands go up. So it's when we talk about health and care, and obviously older you get, the probabilities that you may have more conditions, is that actually this is about all of us. All of us may all of us may have something that we're dealing with, and therefore we can't all be put into one category, be it by age or diagnosis, disease. And you know, if one person has a cognitive impairment and is living with dementia, then that's one person who has cognitive impairment and living with dementia, because it will impact them differently to how it impacts another person. So I think for us. It helps us to be authentic and true because we talk about, in my day-to-day role, we talk about inspiring healthy and happy living. And uh, we, that's our why. And then we talk about how are we going to do that. And we talk about doing that through our impact through relationships. <laughs> so straight off, our accountability is about getting to know who you, who you are and what makes you tick and what's important to you, because what matters to you matters to us. And then, because obviously, some of our services are regulated, there's a whole set of regulatory, I hate the word compliance, but that's what they are, compliance standards. And they are written, even as they're they're being rewritten currently, uh, with all the aged care reforms. But even in their current format, they are written in a very consumer-led way. But actually, the way they're applied within the sector as a whole, we still have a lot of medical models, clinical models, and even the way that through regulation, and I totally support robust, independent regulation that comes in and validates what we're doing. But actually, the way that's done and the data that's collected, actually goes away from consumer directed care because it is diminishing people and their conditions and their life down to a set of metrics that don't necessarily have a a narrative attached to them. So they, whilst everything out there talks about this beautiful approach, actually enables and is there to facilitate relationship-centered care, the practice doesn't match it. And what we're trying to do internally in the organization where I work is to actually make a reality of those relationships, make a reality so that although we still have to do all those compliance activities, but when it comes to interface with people, we want people to be first, centre and last. They, they're they what drive us. That's to help them achieve their purpose, to help them live their best life, to help people live well and ultimately die well is really, really important to us. And to, to gain people's trust, to actively listen, to treat people with dignity and respect and to be held accountable for that, I think... It's just one of the best opportunities that we have and it's what motivates me personally to get up each day to know that we can have a positive impact on somebody's life. And if we don't get it right, to listen, learn and find the opportunity to rectify and work with the individual so that we do get it right, so that it's a, a really good experience for them and for us because it brings us joy too
0: by the sound of it, and I seem to ask this question a lot, is when I speak to people on this podcast and they tell me these amazing stories of empathetic leadership and relationships. Now, whether it's in HR, change management, paramedicine, the question always pops up for me is then, why isn't this the norm? It sounds so obvious. Why is this not the norm across aged care? Or is it, and aged care has just gotten a bad rap in the press? Everything about aged care
1: isn't always good, but then everything isn't always good about healthcare. You can always find the things that need improving. And, and you know we, we never arrive, but there's a lot more good happening in aged care than is spoken about and celebrated. And obviously good news stories don't necessarily make the media or the press. So you don't hear the wonderful stories that take place and that are life-changing for people. Gosh, I think the opportunity for even the Aged Care Quality Commission when they come to garnish and and gather those wonderful stories, yes, if there's improvement, we need to know where improvement is needed, but it's actually helping tell those stories is really, really important. Something we do internally, and it was one of our staff quite a while ago now that came up with the idea, and it's actually grown. And it, it's really special and it happens across the whole organisation. We have something called Form of Hope and it's where either a staff member to staff member can call out and do a thank you note where they've seen our values being lived. And they can call it out because they've seen that interaction with somebody who uses our services or they've seen that positive behaviour between staff and how they're treating each other. But we've expanded it. And it's wonderful because we have clients now, either residents in residential care, because we have run a village as well, our village residents or our community clients, we have the opportunity for them to nominate and say thank you. And the stories are so heartwarming. And what we do, because they're thanking staff we every quarter um, a panel comes together and it's a panel of people who use our services and we choose a different member of staff and it's facilitated by a creative and engagements therapist and she oversees the program but they then choose on some winners and that, that means those staff, they don't know they've been nominated, uh, but they get the lovely surprise. And it's a thank you. And we obviously uh, do a gift voucher to say thank you, but they get the story of why they've been nominated. And it just brings so much joy. And we publish them in our regular magazine that we send out to all people who use services. And it's just one way of marking the excellent contributions that are made. But more importantly, what it demonstrates is the relationships and the impact. And the stories are so heartwarming when people say, you know, my carer turned up today and of her own volition, she chose to get me some flowers because she knew that they would make me smile. She notices those small details about me. She knows me well, not to just to know that I like flowers, but which flowers I like. And just simple, they seem simple acts of kindness. And yes, your question, why isn't it done? I think sometimes over the years, sometimes the pace of how we work, the what is needed to be done, sometimes can overtake our humanity and... We just sometimes need to to stop and recognise why we're doing this, who we're doing it for, and also think about how would we like to be treated in those circumstances, what would be meaningful to us. And whilst we won't, it's not our job to project our feelings onto the person using the service or onto other staff members but it is a useful exercise and i think quite a skill so your question about why isn't it being done i don't know if there is sufficient self awareness about the the impact of relationships i don't know if there's real teaching in anybody's learning care medical nursing whatever discipline you've come from about the power of relationships and the need to be human. And I think there was years ago, certainly in my training, 40-odd years ago, you were taught you leave your problems at the door and you come in and you do your job and you've got your professionalism. And, yes, you don't bring your problems with you. That's correct. But actually that professional aura and being professional doesn't mean that you're not human and that you're not real and that you can't build relationships or that you can't have a laugh or that share some things and particularly in aged care and particularly in a residential aged care facility staff and the residents and their families and significant others become like an extended family so those relationships do build and it doesn't in any way diminish the professionalism of the service or the care or the skill and expertise that's being brought to the
0: table, but it's about being human. And that's one of the things that we talk about is being a human first and your role second. It's building those relationships. So the question is then if we're talking about relationship-centered care and we've moved into a little bit more about staff and asking what matters to you. Do you have those same conversations with your staff? Like, is mental health of staff in aged care? Is that a conversation that's happening in the sector? I think it could happen
1: more. I think it does happen. I can only, from my own organisational perspective, when we launched our new strategy two years ago now, five year strategy. One of the things we took the opportunity to do was revisit Sauna, which means happiness and we have a a sauna ethos. And Sauna for us is about helping the person to be the best version of themselves. And we apply that to the people we care for and use our services and towards each other. So when we did that review, we took the opportunity to also review value statements. And we included staff. We held focus groups. We did likewise with our a myriad of clients and some of their families, And staff across the organization couldn't capture everybody, but we got as many as we could. And one of the the important things that we did with those values was not just talk about the value and give them a descriptor and say what they did. But we spoke about the behaviors that accompany that value And then we took it a step further. Now, this may be my mental health influence and my background, but we also spoke about the experience. So we said, okay, this is the value and this is the descriptor. These are the behaviors, not an exhaustive list, but here's the behaviors that would typify, for example, this value. But actually, it's not just enough to say I've behaved in a certain way. We want to know how have you experienced it? So if I say that I'm going to listen to you, the experience should be, I feel heard. (laughs) And so we've taken it that bit further. And in doing that, we've extended, our values do not differ for staff or people who use our services and and that framework that we're using applies to all. Within that, therefore, when we talk to our staff, when we, we say to them, what matters to you? because it matters to us. Now, obviously, we've got a framework. We've got, we meet all our employment obligations. We try and support our staff through difficulties that they may ha- have. We want to also listen and help them flourish in their work and help them to be the best version of themselves when they come to work. But aside that, we have also have an external source where which they've got an app it's got some great resources on it they can they've got their own login details it's very personal and private so there are activities that can help their own physical and mental well-being through an outside source, it also, if it should ever be needed and they needed any external counselling or support, they can go to that, knowing that it's totally confidential and that there is something available to them. So there's a, I think it's not just one solution. I think it's a range, but I think creating that culture where staff can come and talk to anybody in the organisation is really important, I, I would hope, irrespective of my seniority and the responsibility and the role that I fulfill covid has made it difficult because i'm tactile but if somebody needs a hug they will get a hug from me and that's really important and if that means i sit alongside i sit alongside and i i watch my other you know i watch our staff do that routinely and i think that's important
0: yeah the power of The power of trust, the power of touch, the power of teams, the power of support in being able to do something. Because in my mind, people don't get into aged care as, oh, yeah, it's something that you do. In my mind, people get into aged care because it's genuinely something that they're interested in and they're passionate about and they care. So what are, if we talk about the staff and their experience, so frontline staff for a moment what are the highlights? Like, what are the things that you watch your staff eyes just light up in their workday?
1: i tell you one of the things that brought so much joy, and obviously we're not out of the woods yet and we've lived with COVID for two or three years now, but when people and our staff and the residents, particularly in aged care, if they manage to see the person without their mask <laughs> and... Oh my goodness, the residents. There was a beautiful comment when somebody said to one of our young carers, and I'm not being uh, ages there, but it was a younger person, and they said to them, Oh my goodness, you're so beautiful behind your mask. And just seeing how that made the carer feel, it's made my eyes moist thinking about it. But it was so, so beautiful. And then... I just think they share, they share jokes, they share ups and downs. You know, we've got a member of staff that has just recently gone on maternity leave. I know that that will bring lots of joy when babies arrive and all of those sorts of things. But I think it's also, those are bigger things, but I think it is in the everyday. It's in the everyday moments. We, some of the activities we do, so we use creative therapy a lot and helping somebody that's got visual impairment to re-engage with art and know they can't do it in the standardised way that they would have expressed themselves previously, but they're now doing it and they're doing a lot more. They're using paints, but they're doing textured so that they can feel their way. The joy that comes from that detail and that engagement is,
0: yeah... Those are some examples. And that would take time as well to learn that art was important to that person. And you hear stories about people when they have dementia, reconnecting with music or reconnecting with art. I saw somebody who reconnected with horses. But that takes time and that takes effort. I guess the flip side of this then, when it comes to aged care, is that if we're talking about building relationships and we're talking about joy and human-centred design and relationship-centred care, then where does death play a part in that? Because to me, it sounds devastating.
1: I think it's right there in the relationship and they are difficult conversations. So let's not sort of mess around with that. Uh, Talking about death can be difficult however in my experience older people talk about death a lot more easily than the rest of us do because they will have experienced it in their lifetime and they know at some time it's going to happen they are now aged and there's there's not a waiting for it but there's an or an expectation but it is an eventuality so i suppose it's that journey of not forcing the conversation about on somebody but very much part of that whole care pathway that whole care planning that whole approach to that person-centeredness is actually when people live with you it's asking about what matters to them and saying particularly if they still can make choices and decisions and if they haven't made an an advanced care plan or directive but it's saying to you, you know when that time comes so that it's not rushed or in a panic have you given thought to we want you to live well and die well and we want that experience for you to be as good as you want to be in the way that you want it and we want to make sure that you've got the right people around you now we don't all get the luxury of knowing exactly when that will happen but i think obviously Some people have illnesses which take a certain trajectory and therefore it it may be more predictable or they become ill in those last days. But I think our staff see it as a privilege as well as that other side of the coin. Yes, it's sad, but it's a privilege to be with somebody at the end of their life, to make it as comfortable as they can in the way that they would like to be cared for. Ensuring that the right people are around them and actually then afterwards remembering and celebrating life. So, something we do here for our residential care facility is every year we have an annual memorial service. We've got a chapel on site, and whether people are of faith or, or no faith, relatives are invited back and a memorial service happens, which very much recognises the people that have died in the previous year. We have their names put on a stone, and we put those into water, it's very symbolic, and as we explain the symbolism, and it is from a faith perspective, but it it hasn't caused offence. And people, relatives don't have to come back, but they're invited, and staff participate. And then we've got a a water fountain outside one of our buildings and those stones that are placed in water in the chapel are moved and put into this more permanent memory. and People can go and visit. People say it's really helpful to be able to look back, to have their loved one recognised. It's also for the staff. It brings some degree of closure but also remembering in a positive way. So I think there's other people would do it differently. I hear of people putting memory trees in their, in care homes, you know, creating things, having a, a book. There's lots of different ways whereby you can remember the, the life that the person has lived. And I think it's, I'm from the UK, as you can probably tell from my accent, and many years ago, I was involved in some work that was around let's talk about death and dying and it was about having the difficult conversations and how how do you help people of all ages understand that death is part of living, if that makes sense, and how you broach the subject. And if you look at different traditions and different cultures around the world, there are very different ways of doing that. And we have uh, staff that represent different cultures. So again, that plays a part because some will approach it very different to others. So it's recognising that as well.
0: And also, I mean, by the sound of it, it's not something to be feared. It's not that we embrace death but if you've got that support you have those open conversations the person at the center is at the center and they're having they're thinking about it and you've got the support of the team and you've got these lovely rituals then that doesn't sound as devastating when i mean people would be sad when someone passes but it wouldn't be as traumatic almost because you have all of those pieces of the puzzle in place so that you celebrate life versus fear death. Is that right?
1: I think so. I think there are some amazing resources and learning material out there for aged care to use. And so we make use of those resources. So Our our staff are taught about end-of-life care so that it enhances what they do It can deal with some of the myth busting that happens and, you know, having those difficult conversations. I think for the person, the older person themselves, they will always go through a wave of emotion and obviously dependent on what their circumstances are, what their ill health is. And therefore, there may be some fears, you know, for them personally, But I think if they've been enabled to do as much as they want to do in preparing and also involving the families, family dynamics can always be interesting and that's another layer of complexity for our staff to manage and to navigate sometimes. But I think if those things are done well, certainly from experience and going to the memorials and participating in them, You know, just the privilege of sitting with some of the bereaved, those that are left and hearing their stories. For me, it's something that I can do so that the person knows that their memory is still validated. And that's important. I think you said this earlier in the context of, you know, people don't just come into aged care. I think people who certainly wouldn't come into aged care for the pay (laughs) – Um, And it's very hard work, and it's not, despite all the talk nationally by government, actually it's not highly prized or highly valued in the the wider external world, and that's not just here in Australia, but I would say that happens replicated globally. But I think when people come into aged care, they come with a heart with a real desire to make a difference to somebody else's life. And that's priceless. And that's worth its weight in gold. You can teach somebody how to care better. You can teach them the skills that they need to do their job safely and competently. And if they, depend on what they do, they may need some professional qualifications or certificates along the way, which is great. But at the center of it is actually that person wants to care for another human being.
0: And that's where the relationship commences. What would you want potential staff to know? So to attract people into the aged care sector, because it sounds stressful and it sounds beautiful at the same time. And it sounds so rewarding having that opportunity to have a direct impact on somebody's life when they absolutely need it the most. What would you say to potential staff?
1: interestingly we've just been doing some recruitment work and I just want to know have you got a passion for older people do you love being with people do you love making a difference in people's lives do you want to come to work and know two days will be the same do you want to get up and know that you're having real impact and that it's yes I'm not going to deny there's hard work But if you are passionate about people and their potential, then I want to hear from you. If you think that you can make a difference, then we can, the courses that you need, yes, you have to do them. You know, there are certain courses that have to be achieved and learning. And that's important on so many levels that the right learning is achieved. But at the core I want you to have a passion and a fire in your belly for people and their potential, particularly older people. I want you to be able to come and engage yourself and bring your whole self to work and know that if you're a vibrant person, fantastic. And if you're a quiet person, fantastic, because the human race is made up of all different people. And that's the same in our care facilities and the people who are using our services. So we know that there will be opportunities for real good impact and engagement that is fulfilling for all concerned. And I I don't think we celebrate that enough.
0: No, because by the sound of it, that would have impact not only for your residents but for their family and for the community and for aged care as a sector if it's peopled with passionate, caring individuals who truly embrace this, this sector. Totally. I think
1: the relationships, the ripple effect is immense. And I think the so often families, they go through so many emotions when their loved one goes into a care home. But actually, it can give them the freedom to do more and to enjoy their loved one more because... They're not the one providing the 24-hour support. Now, for some who choose to do that, fantastic. But for those who don't, there can be a whole range of mixed emotions of guilt. Have I done the right thing? Oh, my goodness, there's so many horrendous stories in the media. Oh, you know, have I chosen well for my loved one? But so the relationship with them and helping them to be partners in care if they wanted to, to be involved as much or as little as the person wants, as well as they want, is really important. It's not as much as we want. It's for what does the resident and then their loved one, but involving them. And often they can bring the missing jigsaws with history and peace in the person's life together, especially if somebody has got memory impairment to some degree.
0: That relationship with the family is really important. Sharon, thank you so much for today. That was such a beautiful discussion. If people would like to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to learn more about the amazing work that you're doing? Well, thank you, Liam, for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure talking
1: to you. But I'm happy for people to have my email. So if you want to include it, that's probably the best way. And i will not sure how many will get in touch, but obviously I will respond. But obviously we have a website at Balikara, so
0: people can look us up online too. Lovely. So Sharon, thank you so much for today. Thank you. You're welcome. So I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about healthy empathy, Empathy First teaches empathy training all over the world and I have an online training course called Empathy Fundamentals, How to Practice Empathy Without Burning Out. If you'd like to access the course, I have a special offer for my podcast listeners. Simply type in the word podcast when you're checking out, and you'll get 50% off, so that's almost $100 off, the Empathy First Fundamentals, How to Practice Empathy Without Burning Out course. You'll find that at empathyfirst.com.au. My name's Leanne Butterworth, and this is the Professional Empathy Podcast.